0: Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Is Jesus enough, or is there something else you have to believe or do or become in order to be right with God? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ with this sermon entitled The Sufficiency of Christ, which covers Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Since our scripture reader this morning is John Flores. A member here at Perimeter, he is the vice president of strategic growth with Promise 686, Uh, and so he'll be reading to to us from Colossians chapter 2.
2: Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 2, 6 through 23. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit And you who were dead in your trespasses in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, John. Let's read aloud together uh, this prayer of illumination. Father, when your voice thunders, it breaks the cedars, flashes forth like fire, and shakes the wilderness. This morning, by that same voice, would you break our hard hearts, shaking the wilderness of our affections, and burning away whatever is not of you. Give birth to new life in us, fresh faith, fresh repentance, fresh obedience, and fresh love. Amen and amen. You know, it occurs to me that there are perhaps many of us, if not all of us, certainly at a certain level, where we come into a Sunday morning and we feel as though that we are in this small little room with no windows, four walls around us, barely able to see, and these four walls that surround us represent the, uh, the struggles of this life, the afflictions of this life, the distractions of heart and mind and soul, the reality of living in a broken body and a broken world. And it feels as though I can't see past these walls. Part of Sunday morning, part of even the reading of God's word, especially even a long passage like that, is believing that through what God has for us in the corporate gathering of his people, it's it's his coming into that reality for us and it's as if he is cutting a window in one of those walls. And he's leading us to the window each Sunday morning and he's saying, look, look past all this and see the rising of the glory of the sun. See what's coming, see what's real, see what's reality in the kingdom of God yes these walls are real and yes these struggles are real but there is one in whom your identity is found who is returning focus on him be enamored with him it's a big part of the purpose of gathering on Sunday mornings in light of that I want to share with you just as we lead into this passage something that I've been doing for years And that is, any time I get to meet with someone that I've never met with before, even if they tell me, yes, I'm a Christian and I've gone to church the majority of my life or at least recently, whatever it may be, I believe in God, so forth, "I, I believe them. It's not that I doubt what they're telling me, but there's always two questions that I ask and have been for 20 plus years of doing this that help me understand well, to what extent do they not just understand, but believe upon the one true gospel, even as we just sing? And so the two questions are, and some of you may recognize these because you've used them as well over the years, or maybe you were asked these questions by someone. And these questions are this, as, we, as I'm sitting with an individual across the table, typically in a coffee shop or somewhere over lunch, just ask the question, hey, let's just, let's just say something crazy happens. And as we're sitting here, a car just comes crashing through this window that we're sitting by and takes us out, and we're before we know it, we're standing before God. And he says, why should I let you into heaven? The answer that I get almost always sounds something like this. It's always in the realm of, well, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to do the right thing. I've tried to help people and, you know, have my good outweigh my bad, something along those lines. Try to be faithful at a certain level. The second question is simply, okay, based on that answer that you just gave, how sure are you on a scale of one to 10, uh, one being, I really should say zero to 10 because zero is no no confidence whatsoever, 10 being 100% sure, no doubt. How sure are you, how confident are you that God would say, come on into my presence? The answer that I get most commonly is six or seven, sometimes an eight, because reality is we all think that we're pretty good at, to a degree, and that it's at some point, though, that goodness is marred a little bit, and so, you know, I don't, I don't think I could say a ten or even a nine, maybe an eight, but I'll settle in seven. Seven is passing, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, seven. Seven. And how I typically follow that up or how I always follow that up is I say, hey, I understand your answers. I get them. It it makes a lot of sense that you would answer that way. Would you be interested to hear how what you answered is actually not in the Bible? It's not what the Bible teaches about how we get to God, how God approves of us, how we're accepted by him, how we have eternal life. It's actually very different from how you just answered. I, I can't remember. I'm sure there's probably been one or two. I can't remember anyone who's ever said no. I don't want to hear that. Most everyone that I recall has said, "Yeah, I'd love to hear," because I, I figured that was the right answer. Now you may be sitting there, and you've been a Christian, and you knew the answers to those questions. You're in the faith, and you understand the gospel to the extent that you know that really the answer to the question, both of them, are uh, a bit of a setup. <laughs> Because you know the answer to the question is, why should God let me into heaven? Why should should I let you into heaven? The answer is, well, you shouldn't. I mean, if it's based on me, if it's based on my moral record or my religious performance, then um, it's not perfect. And the standard is perfection. And so in everything about me, if the standard is perfection in not just behavior, but in word and in deed and motivation and desire, then yeah, you you should never let me in. It's, it's not that one and one through nine don't even really exist. It's zero, I have no chance. But based on Jesus, he's the only thing that I plead. He, he is the one in whom I say you shouldn't let me into heaven, but, but he, he is my substitute. I claim nothing but him. Because he is he is my perfect record. He is in every way, and not just behavior, but in word, thought, and deed, motivation, desire. He was and is perfect. He perfectly achieves the standard of the law, and in, in so doing, he also willingly took the wrath of the law, the, 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 the wrath of God that the law demands, that sin demands. He took so that I wouldn't have to take it. And then he defeated the penalty of sin, death, so that I wouldn't have to die and be separated from you, oh God. So I don't claim anything. I I don't claim anything about me. I claim Jesus, faith in him alone. So you shouldn't let me in, God. But Jesus, he is sufficient. He is my only hope. Now, based on that answer, how sure am I, zero, or one or two or three, all the way up to 10. I'm going to say 10 because if it's based on me, nothing. Based on him, it's not arrogant to say because he's the one who did the work, not me. It's a 10. It's perfect. It's good. It's fully sufficient. He is fully sufficient. We, we, have, this, we have this thing within us, this, this, this sin nature reality within us to where we want to actually try to improve upon a perfect work already done for us. We want to add to it. We want to add our moral performance to it. And here's the question that Paul is asking in this text, and he's asking it to Christians, those who understand the gospel, those who would answer the question, uh, you shouldn't let me into heaven, but only Jesus. He's my hope. He's my, so based on him, that's all I got. And God would say, then come on in. Christ covers you. The perfect lamb of God covers you. But if you're a Christian sitting there and you know that's the answer, here's the question Paul is asking you. He's saying, if you know that that's the way into the kingdom, you know that's the way unto salvation, here's the question. Then why are you going back to the old way of life before you knew Jesus? Even as a Christian, you know that it's Christ and Christ alone, that only he is sufficient. Yet you keep running to moral performance and religious duty and all kinds of other things to, to, as if to prop it up before the Lord to say, well, I know Jesus got me in, but I gotta do all these things so that you'll, so that you'll still like me. So that you won't be mad at me, God. So that you'll bless me, so that I can be in favor with You And the answer that God uh, quietly but assuredly keeps saying over us is, you cannot have more favor with me than you already do in Jesus. If you are in Christ, then you are fully in favor in my presence. I accept you fully and completely. There's nothing more that you could do that could make me accept you, love you, put favor upon you than, than I already do. And it's all because of Jesus, not you. And so what he's talking to these Colossian believers about is that they believe the gospel. They get it. They know that it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He is sufficient, but how are they living? They're living as though that's not true. They're running to these other things to add to, even though it's not, they think it is, to add to Christ in order to get God, for practical purposes, to get God to like them more. So they're taking a little bit of pagan religion over here and a little bit of Jewish religion over here and kind of little everything in between and they're meshing it all together. And here in these verses, in chapter two, Paul is calling them out and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he starts with a profound statement. Right there in verse six, he says, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. It means, yes, you've received him by faith. There's your salvation. You can't lose it. You can't be born again, again, and again, and again. You believed it. But now that you're in the faith, now that you're in Christ, how should you walk every single day? Well, he says, in the same way that you received him, which begs the question, how did we receive him? And the answer is very simple. We received Christ at the very beginning, faith and repentance. Repenting of our sin, realizing that there's nothing that I can do, both good or bad, that could ever position me less or further away from because I'm already separated from God or closer to him. There's nothing that I could do. So I recognize that all my righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. They'll never be the perfect standard that he requires, and so I recognize that, and I also recognize my sin, and I confess it all, and I repent. Repent means turn from it. I'll no longer run to these things to to prop me up before you, God, these religious performances and moral performances that I think get me favor with you. I'll no longer run to those, and I'll repent over here of all the ways in which I sin against you because I've offended a holy God. And so we repent, and then what do we do? After we repent, we believe. Faith, faith in Jesus, he is sufficient. He is the only one. So who do I boast in? It's certainly not my performance. It's certainly not my sin. It's Jesus by faith, by grace alone, and faith alone through Christ alone. That's how we received him. So watch this, isn't this interesting? So Paul says to the Colossians, in the same way that you received him, faith and repentance, walk in him every day that way we tend to want to walk with, well, I need to make sure I've got my life together morally. And then here's some more religious performance. And then here's some things that I need to make sure that I do in terms of sharing my faith. And if I share my faith, God's gonna like me more for sure. So then uh, I'll take this step with him and I'll walk with him in this way to where I'll make sure I'm praying enough. And if I'm not praying enough, he's probably mad at me. And so let's make sure I pray as much as I possibly can. And then over here, I need to make sure I read my Bible this much because if I don't read. And so these are the steps that we take and we call it Christianity. Are those things good? Absolutely. Are they ever meant to be given to us in such a way that it wins more favor with God or that we go, God likes me more because I did them? No. We can't improve upon Jesus. We can't improve on the finished work and the sufficiency of Christ. Yes, we do these things as we walk with him, but because of the finished work of Christ, not in order to attain it more, we can't. So the walking with Jesus is literally every day, all throughout the day, all throughout the day. Repentance, oh Lord, forgive me of the ways in which I wanna run to other things instead of you. And faith, you are the only one I need. Repentance, oh Lord, forgive me of the ways in which I keep thinking that my religious performance gets me more favor with you. Faith, you give me all the favor that I could ever want or long for, not just now, but for all of eternity because of Jesus. He won it for me repentance, Lord, forgive me of the ways in which I have sinned against you today, the ways that I've been prideful, the ways that I've uh, been uh, spiteful towards others, the ways in which I've been malicious and all the ways in which I've seen manifest, sin uh, sin manifest in me. Forgive me of that faith, next step, faith. Jesus, you covered all that. My hope and my boast and my, my everything is you, Christ. That's what it looks like to walk in the Christian faith. Do we do all those other things that I mentioned? Do we read our Bible? Do we pray? Do we share our faith? Yes, but it's not to get more of God. We already got all that we have, all that we could ever have in Jesus. It's not to perform for him so that he'll like us more. It's because we are already fully loved in him. Our heart changes because his spirit is within us, changing us to make us look more like Jesus, and we actually begin to desire those things. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Paul is trying to get these Colossian believers to just remember. Remember, this is not the gospel that I preach to you. This gospel of performance, moral and religious. No, it's not that, it's Jesus. He is sufficient. We recorded a podcast a couple months ago that was just released this past Monday. It's a part of the series that we've been doing In our Digging Deeper podcast, we've been calling it Faith And. And this past Monday, we released the one that we had recorded with Dane Ortland, a a dear friend and fellow pastor here uh, in in the States. And um, many of you read Dane's book, Gentle and Lowly, along with some of his other things. And it's a fascinating conversation. If you haven't listened to it yet, I would encourage you to. The the topic we were covering with him uh, was faith and sanctification, which is just a big fancy biblical word for uh, becoming more like Jesus. How do we grow in Christ, faith in sanctification? One of the things that he said in the podcast, if you haven't listened to it yet, that really struck me is he said every day, we need to wake up and become Christians all over again. Now, he's not saying pray a prayer of salvation every single day, that's not the point. He's not saying be born again, you're only born again once. Salvation is a one-time thing, you can't lose it. What he's saying is, In the same way, he's saying exactly what Paul says here. In the same way that you receive Christ, walk in him that way every single day. Believe he is the sufficient one who covers all your sin. Repent of your sin daily all throughout the day. Walk with him. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Learn to be a Christian all over every single day. Why? Because the natural tendency of your distracted heart is gonna uh, begin to believe that there's something else you have to do more. To get God to like you more and that's not the gospel so he says in verse 7 he says so be rooted in him not in your performance be built up in him not in your moral record established in the faith not established in what you do but in the faith just as you were taught and what's the end result of all that when we walk every day with Jesus that way, then we abound in thanksgiving. We just say all day throughout the day, thank you, God. i tell you, one, one of the marks of a Christian who is maturing, of someone who is understanding the, um, the limitless, immeasurable implications of the sufficiency of Christ in everyday life for them, One of the ways that you know, wow, that person is growing like crazy in Jesus, is they just all the time, either outwardly or inwardly, they're just constantly going, thank you, God. Wow, thank you, God. I should be on a fast track to hell. Thank you, God. Thank you for the cross. You saved me. Thank you. You didn't just save me and leave me there. You're changing me. You're moving me towards glory. You're putting deposits of glory in me every single day. You're giving me a little bit more of a taste of heaven through Jesus in me every single day. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. This is what permeates the believer's life. Not what else should I do so that God will not be mad at me, but thank you, God, that you're not mad at me. Thank you that you approve of me fully and completely because of Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the newness of life that can only be found in the resurrected Savior, who is now mine. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's a mark of maturity. And so in light of that, he gives three warnings to the Colossians. He says, remember the gospel, walk in the way that you received it, walk in it every single day. And Be warned about three things. Here's the first one. Let no one take you captive. Let no one take you captive. We're not talking about physical captivity. Certainly Paul was, he was in jail when he wrote this. Not talking about that. He's talking about the ways in which our hearts and our minds can be hijacked by things that we think are better than the gospel. Even though we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we live as though that's not true. And so he gives examples. The two that I want to highlight in this text that he says is he says, don't be, uh, don't be taken captivity by, first he lists philosophy. Now, that, don't think philosophy in the sense of the way in which we would study it in an academic setting here. There's probably some implications of that. But this is a really rich Greek word that in the original language means a lot of different things that were happening under this umbrella of what we might translate in English today as being Philosophy. This Greek word only happens once in the entire New Testament, and it's right here in this verse. It's something that at some level was happening in Colossae that wasn't happening in other places. It was unique to this place in different way, in a subtle way because the Galatians were struggling with this at some level. So were the Ephesians. But there's something going on in Colossae where he uses this word once and only with them. And as we study this word, we begin to understand that what was happening there is that the Christian believers who said, yes, Jesus is sufficient, and they say it, but they don't live it, are actually turning to this kind of hodgepodge mixture of everything from paganism to Judaism to all kinds of magical kind of weird stuff that they think has to be done in addition to Christ to fully cover them and all their bases. So... Things like, it's mentioned in the text numerous times here, things like asceticism, which is a, a, a practice that was, that was done back then where you, you physically harm yourself because you think that in order to suppress the fleshly desires of the body, that you, you have to literally beat yourself, whip yourself, hurt yourself in order to suppress the flesh. And you convince yourself that in some way God is impressed with that, that he would want that, that in, in some macabre way he is he's wanting you to deface the physical image of God that we bear in an effort to suppress the indulgences of the flesh angel worship was another one that they were practicing that there's angels about us that we need that yeah we need Jesus but we we need these angels too to really protect us Uh, There was secret knowledge, teachings of secret knowledge, that you had to have certain visions, be able to see things and hear things that others can't. And you can't really know that you're in the faith unless you have these secret visions. There was, again, mixtures of Judaism in here with it as well, where there was teachings of circumcision. You still have to be circumcised and you still have to adhere to these Jewish holidays and traditions and practices. And you can't really know that you have eternal life and you can't really know that Christ is with you unless you do these things in addition to faith in Jesus. And these were taking root. These type of belief systems were taking root in the Colossian church. With that, he said, Don't be taken captive captive by elementary principles or elementary spirits. This is also an interesting Greek word that um, is getting at evil and hostile powers. Now, not in the sense that we would say, oh, that's that's actually something to truly be concerned about. Because Paul tells us elsewhere in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but but it's against the the spirit of the air and the, the demons, Satan and his demons, that, they, that we fight a true spiritual battle. That's true. That is true. But this is different. What the Colossians were doing is they were believing folklore. This mixture of kind of saying, okay, yeah, there's God and yeah, there's Jesus. But uh, there's, there's, there's these other things that you need to make sure that you're doing uh, in order to make sure, make sure that your fate plays out the way that you want it. They, they thought that there were these certain... Evil, mystical powers that controlled your fate, and you had to keep them happy. And so, what what was the result? On the ground level, what was it? It was daily superstition, daily, almost magic practices that they were embracing. Now, you may hear all of this and go, okay, I mean, that's all back then. We don't do those things today. I don't know. There's so all kinds of things that we do that we add to the finished work and sufficiency of Christ. There's all kinds of things that we put upon ourselves and upon each other that at the heart level and even at some level at the behavioral level don't look all that different from some of these things that the Colossians were doing. I mean, this is gonna sound silly and we know that it's silly, but just stick with me here. How many of you walk down a sidewalk, pay attention to the cracks and don't step on them? You've been doing it since you were a kid because some guy or girl in your first grade class said, step on a crack, break your mom's back. You said, I don't wanna do that. And ever since then, you've been dodging the cracks on the sidewalk. Why? Okay, it's silly, you know it's not true, but however, there is a little bit of a root that's going all the way down into a belief system that says, well, what if? Well, I mean, can't hurt. No, no, and Paul's answer is, stop it. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. Don't do those things. Your your team does not win or lose a game based on a shirt that you haven't washed for 20 years that you wear every game day. (laughs) Wash the shirt, throw it away. (laughs) One of the two. Don't wear it on... We do it, why? Because we, there's something there. Like we would just go, I know it, it makes no difference how those guys play. Why do you do it? There's something there deep in the root system of our hearts that goes, "Eh, I mean, you know, maybe. This is is in essence no different than what they were doing. They're, They're covering their bases. There's these little evil spirits that I gotta keep happy or my fate doesn't turn out the way that I want it. Paul is saying, when you do that, when we do that, we're actually undermining the finished work of Jesus. It defaces him. We'll do it in our Christian circles, we'll add to it all the time. There's a second baptism of the Holy Spirit to know if you can't speak in tongues, you're not really in the faith. What is that? No, 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 we're adding to the finished work of Jesus. That's not biblical you got to be able to see visions. We, we literally still have that one in the church today. If you don't have these supernatural visions and, and words from the Lord, then you're not really walking with him. That's not, that's not the gospel. Paul is saying, don't do that. Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient. There's nothing more that you have to do. When I was... Um, When I was doing campus ministry at the University of Alabama, we had a few, we had a handful of football players that were involved with us, and this one guy in particular that I got super close with, and he was a tremendous football player, started all four years, uh, won several championships, was an All-American all four years that he was there, tremendous athlete, and loves Jesus, loves Jesus. But one day as we would meet weekly, and one day as we're meeting over lunch, I asked him a question that I would do with every guy that I met with. I'd say, hey, talk to me about the area of sexual sin in your life. How's that going for you? It was during the season. It was during the football season. He says, oh, during the season, that's not an issue at all. I said, oh, really? Well, I'm glad to hear that, but why only during the season? He said, well, because I don't wanna do anything that would cause God not to bless my performance on the field. Okay, you know that's not Christianity, right? And he says, what? God's not ready to pounce on you every time you do something wrong and ready to just pour out favor on you every time you do something right. Does he want obedience? Of course, but not because you think he's out to get you, but because you love him. Because you love him for what he's done. Watch, Watch what happens in the text here. This is beautiful how Paul sets this up. Because he gets through verse eight, where he has just said, "See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elementary, uh, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ." And then he says, verse nine: "For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily." Remember, how do we fight? How do we fight against being taken captive? The first thing that Paul says is, remember who Jesus is. Remember who he is. You're sitting here trying to appease evil spirits that you think are gonna control your fate and they don't exist. Look at Jesus. He's God in the flesh and he dwells in you and his work is finished, rest in him. Remember who Jesus is, then watch what he says. Very next part, he says, Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. That's another way to read that. Probably the better translation is, and you have been complete in him. So the second thing he says is not just remember who Jesus is in order to keep from being taken captive with your thoughts and desires and so forth. He says, but remember who you are in Christ. Because this Jesus who in in the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ and Christ is in you, what, what does that make you? Well, that means that you are complete, not lacking anything because of Jesus in you. You don't need to try to add to it. It's finished. It's done. God is well pleased with his son. Therefore, God is well pleased with you if Christ is in you. And then he spends the next five verses, 11 through 15, just recounting what Jesus has done. Remember what Jesus has done. That's what he's saying is just remember, just think about it. your hearts have been circumcised. You don't need a physical circumcision. Your hearts have been cut open and made new in Jesus. Your, your sin and your flesh has been buried with Christ and you have been resurrected to newness of life in him. As you remember what Christ has done, he says, listen, uh, The record of your debt that stood against you and all of your sin, you've been fully forgiven and it's been set aside because it was nailed to the cross. Breathe easy, rejoice, be glad. He's not mad at you. There's nothing more you have to do. If that weren't enough, he says, verse 15, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. In other words, Colossians, these little evil spirits that you think you have to keep happy, He exposed them for what they are, which is nothing. They've been put to open shame and he triumphed over every one of them. Christ is sufficient. Believe it. Walk and live as though it's true. Two more warnings he gave us quickly here. He said, secondly, let no one pass judgment on you. Two ways in particular that, he highlights is, he says, first, don't let people pass judgment on you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Because what he says that what was happening is that people were judging the Colossians for what they were eating and drinking and for not, uh, for not participating in these Jewish holidays and uh, traditions and so forth, ceremonies. He says, look, you're free in Christ. You don't have to do those things. You can eat and drink whatever you want. Do it to the glory of God. Don't abuse it. Don't use it to indulge the flesh. Your freedom is not to indulge the flesh, to sin, but your freedom is to glorify God. And you don't have to do this and do that. Don't touch this, don't eat that. uh, That's all stuff that you don't need to do because Christ is sufficient. So be free from those things. Glorify God in your body. He set us free to be uninhibitedly joyful in him, to take the, the huge weight off of us. Performance. Secondly, though, he says, let no one pass judgment on you for the substance that we have in Christ. He talks about in verse 17, how all those things that we run to instead of Jesus, that we think are winning us favor before God, all those things are, are just a shadow of Jesus. They, they, they promise that, yeah, this is gonna get you something that, only, uh, that, you, that you really want, but really in, in actuality, only Jesus can give. He, he is the substance of life. You keep running to these other things to give you life, run to him. Forsake all those other things, run to Jesus. He is the substance of life. I wanna say again, this is so important to hear. As we grow deeper in Christ, our actions and our choices will increasingly reflect him, his heart, his desires. But listen, we will pursue that. We will pursue obedience to him. Not because of fear of punishment from him, and not because the fear of judgment from others, we will become, uh, we'll begin to look more and more like Jesus because he's transforming us in us, through Christ in us, and because we love him. It's a very different motivational base. Third, the third warning he gives is this let no one disqualify you. How could you even be disqualified from the faith? Well, simply, he gives us two reasons. The first one is the, is the key. Really both are by embracing a false gospel. There's one true gospel. Faith alone and Christ alone, the grace alone. He's the finished one. He's the one who's finished the work. He's the sufficient one. You believe anything else gets you favor with God, then you're believing a, fa- a false gospel. He he lays out again in verses 18 and 19, he says, he, he speaks again to asceticism. Don't physically harm yourself, God's not impressed with that. Don't worship angels or any other spiritual being other than Jesus, God, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. Don't go into details about visions and things that you've acquired because of your faithfulness. He says, don't be puffed up with a sensuous mind. God's not impressed by any of that. Then he says, secondly, don't let anyone disqualify you by not holding fast to Jesus, the head of the church. And then he just gives this very quick little picture. He just simply talks about how, if you don't have the head, then the body dies. Like, that makes sense, we get that. He says, who are we? We're the body, we're the body of Christ, we're the church. Who is he? He's the head of the church. If you don't have Jesus and Jesus alone, you don't have the head. He is the head. You lose the head, the body dies. As the passage finishes up, I wanna just highlight verse 23 to you. He keeps talking about some more about how he says, look, they're gonna tell you you can't touch this and you can't eat that and you can't drink this. And you can't. They're gonna tell you all these rules and just, just don't listen to them, Colossians. And then he says this about verse 23, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But listen, but they have no value, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They look like they're wise, they look like wisdom, but what is true wisdom? Well, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us, I love this, he has become for us wisdom from God. Doesn't, he doesn't look like wisdom to the world, but he is the very essence of wisdom. He is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you've been walking with the Lord for years and years and years, or wherever, uh, whether you're just checking this faith thing out, the message of Colossians, from Paul to the Colossian church, is simply this. All those things that you want to run to to add to Christ. That you think get you a greater standing with God, here's the message of this passage stop doing that. Stop doing that. Jesus is sufficient. One of the things that Dane said on the podcast that I've referred to is he said, You know, when we run to all these other things instead of Jesus because we think that they are giving us something that only He can, it's like being at the Grand Canyon but holding our phone and looking at a picture of the Grand Canyon and going, oh, wow, look at that. Sometimes we need brothers and sisters in Christ to come up to us and say, would you put the phone down and look at the real thing? He in and of himself will amaze you, he is sufficient. Father, would you help us believe that? Everything within our flesh, we struggle. We struggle to believe that. We we are so wayward, we're so distracted. We think there's all kinds of things that we can do to add to Christ, and we, we, more than we know, we're like the Colossian believers who are doing that, and so Lord, help us to remember who Jesus is and remember who we are in Christ, remember what he's done, to walk with you in repentance and faith every day, just as we have received you. You, O Holy Spirit, you're the one who does this in us. You're the one who teaches us. You're the one who changes us. So would you do that now? Teach us, change us unto your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.